Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Unmuted it, then I muted it. Can't get things straight today. Good morning, everybody. Morning. All right. Hey, uh, so glad that you're here to worship at Coastal Oaks Church this morning. And let me also say, those of you that are gathering online and watching us on Facebook or YouTube, we are so honored by your presence today. And uh, we are grateful for Andy, for Deanne, for the team of volunteers and staff that have uh, expanded the technology that allow us to do this. It's the kind of things that happen in the background that many of us don't always know. And yet it's a great way for us to continue connecting with our scattered members of Coastal Oaks Church. And we look forward to the day when it's not as complicated to gather in person, right? Like we are longing for that day. But for now, in this moment, we are grateful that you are here in person, that you're online, but that we're able to worship together as one big body of Christ. So thank you for joining us. If you are watching on Facebook or YouTube, we'd invite you to uh, like leave your name, drop a uh, comment in the comment section. Let us know that you're watching. We'd love to hear from you. That would be a great thing. Uh, I went fishing with my son yesterday, and uh, we like we have this unique way of fishing where we don't actually catch any fish. It's kind of like a, it's a family tradition, really. Uh, we we're gentle to the fish. We don't really want to take them out of the water, um, which means we just spend a lot of time like casting. And so as I was casting and not really having to focus on you know reeling anything in, I started thinking about church, and I was like, you know, but but with every cast, there's this expectation, and I started coming up with this big metaphor of like this is what church should be, right? We should expect things. And then my mind kept going because I really did have a lot of time to think about this and nothing about fishing. And I was like, but it's like, it's not we are casting, but like, like God is casting in there. Like he's the bait and will we take it? And, the, and it got so complex. I was like, how about we just cut the metaphor and say what I'm trying to say. I hope you came today with a great sense of expectation that you are ready to hear from God today. And, and sometimes in the routine of life, we can think, oh, that's just one more Sunday. That's just one more uh, day kind of doing what I do every single week. But friends, there is the opportunity in this moment that you might hear a fresh word from God right where you sit today. And there's a chance that when you walk out those doors in a little bit, your life could be radically changed. That all of the things that you brought in, the, the things that weigh you down, the things that you feel are uh, you know hidden, the, those parts of your life that you wish you could just get rid of, the shame, the conviction, all of those things, like in this moment today, God could release you from all of those burdens. Your life could be remarkably changed in this moment. And I hope that together, that's the expectation that we bring into this moment. When we get to sing, when we get to read God's word, when we get to pause for a moment and set aside everything else that's going on in life and remember that God can speak to us here. So whether you're online, whether you're in person, I pray that that is your expectation for today. Because we are kicking off a new series 
And it is something that I am excited about. This is kind of my life's passion. My life's calling is to serve the local church. I I work at a seminary right now, but the seminary that I work at is laser focused on preparing men and women to serve in the local church. So both vocationally, those who do it for a living, and also just people who are Bible study teachers or nursery workers or, or any other way that you could imagine serving in the local church, that's who we get to work with, and that's why I love my job because through Stark College and Seminary, we are able to train men and women all across South Texas. And it's a way for me to stay connected, not just to one congregation, not just one assembly or gathering, but I get to hear stories from churches all across, bodies of believers all across South Texas. And it is encouraging work. I love the church. And that's what we're going to be thinking about together over the next couple of weeks is this idea of the church but specifically the miracle that is the church. You may not always think about the church as a miracle, but that's what I want to think about together today is the miracle of the church. If you have your Bible and want to turn to the scripture, we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 16 in just a little bit. We'll read it together. Today is one of those easy verses to remember where we're going. It'll stick in your brain forever because it's Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. It's 16, 17, 18. See, isn't that easy to remember? 16, 17, and 18. You can turn there and we will read that together in just a little bit. During the, uh, the pandemic, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, one of my favorite things uh, to do is go to the movies. I love, like, that's my wife and I's date of choice. We love going and watching movies in the movie theater. And over the last few months, of course, that hasn't happened because movie theaters either haven't been open or there hasn't been, you know, any new movies, any new content really to watch. So I've done probably what a number of you in here have done. Since there's not new stuff to watch, we have rewatched old things, right? Have you rewatched some old movies during the last few months or, or maybe old TV shows? I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen Back to the Future, but I've watched it a couple of times in the last few months. I don't know how many times I've seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but I've watched it a couple of times over the last few months. I, I've, I've gone back through and rewatched these movies over and over again. I've watched old uh, like TV shows that I've seen a number of times. I'm actually wearing socks from The Office today. I love The Office. Like I've seen every episode and yet I'll watch them again anytime it's on. Like if if the office is on, I'm going to pause, especially like if I should be vacuuming or something like I'm definitely going to stop and watch whatever part is happening at the office or Parks and Rec or any number of other shows. That's kind of just been what we've done over the last few months is we've rewatched old things. And I like that, but you kind of know where the twists are coming in the story, right? Like even when you rewatch these things, you might not remember every specific detail or exactly how they're going to get from once, but you know the major twists. Like you know when you watch Top Gun, after Goose sings Great Balls of Fire, he's going to take a flight that's not going to end so well for him, right? Like you are aware, you may not know exactly which flight it is, but you know at some point this is not going to go well. But that's okay because we know Goose goes on to be a successful successful emergency room doctor. So it's all right. Like we can all take solace in that fact. Life turns out okay for him. That's the part of Top Gun. That's uh, it's the afterwards. No, I love it though. When I get to a movie or a show that I've uh, haven't seen in a while and I don't remember something, 
right? Like when there's a twist that I can't remember, or there's some detail, I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. And it just kind of, it, it's almost like the movie is fresh for the first time. My wife and I recently rewatched Lord of the Rings. Like we watched all of the, the three movies and there were so many moments that Aaron was like, I don't remember any of this. I don't remember like any of these things happening. Now, I didn't have the heart to tell her it's because she slept through it the first few times we watched it. Like that just seemed mean. I was like, no, that's great, honey. Aren't they good movies? And we just kept watching them. But I love when that experience happens. When you're watching something that, that you've seen before, and yet it's almost like a fresh experience. It's like something new is kind of washing over you and you're just like, I didn't even remember or I hadn't put that together. Or, oh, I just noticed some new detail. That is one of my most favorite things. It's just refreshing in the moment. I say all of that because I want to invite you today to think about a passage of scripture that you have likely heard before. It's not going to be some obscure passage that we're going to pull out from a book that you've, you've never read or, or something that's going to be very unfamiliar. No, these verses are going to be familiar, but I want to invite you to hear them fresh to hear them new, to maybe take all of the, the context that we have surrounding these verses and maybe just set it aside for a moment. That perhaps as we read through these verses, as we think about them together, we won't take all of the advantage that we have of history and hindsight, all of the times that we've studied these verses and, and, and allow them to you know, kind of interpret them before we've even really thought about them. No, we're gonna put all of that stuff just to the side for a moment and we are going to read these scriptures as if it's for the first time. We're going to hear the conversation as if it's the first time. We're going to drop ourselves kind of right into the context. Imagine that we are sitting there with the disciples and we hear Jesus speak these words as if it's for the first time. That we want to let it wash over us and strike us as a fresh word today. I want to invite you to do that. And, and as I said, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. And before we read our scripture, I want to set up some of the context of what's going on here. Because this moment, these couple of passages, this, this one narrative is what some people describe as a, the biggest turning point in Matthew. That in the book of Matthew, kind of everything up to this moment has been building to this one set of circumstances. And then everything from here kind of goes towards the cross. It's a, it's a turning point. It's a decisive moment in the story. It's, it's when a shift occurs and everything else is different after this. In the book of Matthew, you've got all of these stories and then we have Matthew chapter 16, and from here, everything is a little bit different. Everything that comes after Matthew 16 should be read or understood or thought about in the context of what happens in these couple of verses. It's a turning point. But the thing about turning points is that so many times, you've probably had a turning point. Like if you go back and think of your life story, there's maybe a decision that stands out to you. There's something that you did or maybe didn't do. And it was kind of a turning point. Like, huh, because I did this one thing, because I made this one choice, because I didn't go to this one place or I didn't invest in that business, everything sort of changed. The thing about turning points and so many times we don't recognize them until after they've happened. And so as we read these, uh, these verses, one of the things we have to keep in mind is the disciples likely didn't wake up that day thinking that this was going to be this monumental shift in the story. 
that they were going to be a part of something that would forever alter the way that they saw Jesus. Of course, they had seen so many unexpected things that I'm sure they woke up thinking, oh yeah, I wonder what, what's gonna happen today. What n- new thing is Jesus going to teach us? What, what amazing miracle is Jesus going to do? But I doubt that they woke up and thought, this is going to be the moment. This is gonna be like a new filter that everything else is going to look different because of what happens today. You don't always recognize a turning point until after it's happened. And that's the the context for the story. Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples. They're gathered together in an area called Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus is having a conversation about the misunderstanding of who he is. He provokes a conversation with the disciples and asks them earlier in the passage, he asks, who do you say, or who do people say that I am? Who do people say that the son of man is? He uses this title, but he's asking, who do people say that I am? And the disciples start to name off some people. Well, you know, some people say you're Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Jeremiah. They, they kind of are just answering, you know, we've heard this from the crowd. We've heard this. Somebody said this. You know, somebody mentioned this possibility that maybe you're this person. But Jesus then takes the conversation in a different direction and says, but Who do you say that I am? No longer is it important who the crowd thinks, who the people out there think. Jesus wants to know who they think he is. He's asking them, okay, don't don't like blend into the crowd. Don't just try and throw out theories that you've heard and, and sort of blend into the background. No, who do you think that I am? I've worked at a bunch of organizations, different like businesses, different places, and and at each place we have meetings, and in those meetings decisions have to happen. And if you uh, you've probably had this kind of person in your office, maybe you've been this kind of person. I know I have sometimes. But there's the person who they disagree with what's going on, or they don't necessarily like the course of action, but they they don't want to say that. Like they don't want to own their uh, their their part of disagreement. They they kind of want to put it off on other people. And I had this one person that we worked with, we would tease her all the time because the code word for that was she would say, well, you know, several people think this over here, like several people. That was the code word, like, oh, she doesn't like what we're talking about, but uh, other people, uh, she's trying to say that other people don't like it, and that's her way of blending back. Several people, several people think we ought to do this, or several people don't think that's a very good decision, and we would laugh about that. But it got so frequent that now anytime if somebody tells me several people, like immediately my guard goes up and is like, whoa, 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 like they're, they're lying about something or this is not true or they're like, you probably have that person who wants to be able to uh, blend back into the crowd. And in this moment, Jesus is not going to allow that from the disciples. He's not going to allow them to just say, oh, well, we think it might be this person or you could be this person or maybe it's this. No, he wants to know, who do you say that I am? Like, what's actually going on in your brain? Who do you think that Jesus is? And Peter steps forward. Of course it's Peter. It's always Peter, right? Peter's the one who jumps up. And Peter answers his question and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And those words must have landed with such weight 
to the disciples. We read them and say, of course he is, because we know where everything is going. But if we put ourselves in the context, and if we can imagine ourselves sitting there in Caesarea Philippi, as Jesus is asking these questions, and we hear Peter say, for the first time in human history, these words, you are the Christ. That is, you are the anointed one, the chosen one, the one that has come to save us. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the first time that Jesus' followers confess that he is the anointed son of God. And we have to imagine what the other disciples must have thought in that moment or what they must have felt because for so long they have thought, well, he's probably a prophet or he's a really great teacher or they've heard what the crowds have been saying. But for the first time, Peter gets it right. For the first time, he correctly identifies you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the one who has come to save us. That, that's you. You are the son of the living God. And the weight of those words had to just wash over the disciples. What a moment. Can you imagine being there to hear those words uttered? You are the Christ. That's Peter's confession and I hope that's your confession today as well, that that's what unites us, is that we would agree that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And while that moment is beautiful, it's significant, it is, it is history-making, it's Jesus' next words that I want to think about together. How Jesus responds to what Peter says. Because what Jesus says next has a direct connection to why I'm here this morning, to why you're here this morning, to why there are people who are watching online right now. What Jesus says next directly connects to us. And it's one of the most stunning miracles in all of the gospel. But unlike so many of the other miracles, this is a miracle that we get to participate in. We get to witness firsthand. It's amazing, and it's wonderful, and we're going to read it together. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask that we would stand together in honor of the reading of God's Word. If you're online today, I'm going to ask that wherever you're at, that you would stand unless you're driving. Don't do it then. But uh, like, if you have the ability, please stand together as we read these two verses from Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that is Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Peter declares who Jesus is, but then Jesus follows up with his own stunning statement. Now, it begins with a blessing uh, to Peter. Jesus blesses Peter, and then he tells him, you are Peter. Now, of course, that sounds like he's just repeating his name, but what he's really saying there is, is you are Cephas. It's this wordplay. The idea is you are a rock. Jesus is making a promise to Peter saying, you are somewhat of strength. You are the rock. You are Peter. You are Cephas. Jesus hears this confession and immediately bestows on Peter a blessing and a promise. It's like a statement of his character, who he is. 
One commentator said, Peter has made his stand for Jesus, and now Jesus is making his stand for Peter. Just as Peter acknowledges who Jesus is, Jesus is making a statement about who Peter is. You are blessed because you have listened to God the Father reveal this truth to you, and you are Cephas. You are a rock. You are someone of strength. And then in verse 18, Jesus says this, I will build my church, or on this rock, I will build my church. On this rock, I will build my church. Now we read those words, or we hear those words, and we have the benefit of history, which means we know that this happened which makes it difficult for us to fully appreciate the audacity of what Jesus is saying. If we could go back right to that moment, right when Jesus says this, the likelihood of that coming true is unfathomably small. I mean, again, we read it and we know where we're at 2,000 years later, and so we say, of course that happened. But in that moment, this rabbi, this nobody from nowhere from the backwater regions of Galilee is saying, I'm going to build a church. It's unthinkable that that would ever happen. I mean, because Jesus really, well, well, he had notoriety. I mean, his teaching, his miracles had given him some notoriety. But for every fan that he had, there were two enemies that wanted to see him fail. There's no political party backing his movement. There's no big religious group that is backing his movement. And in fact, every time he has the opportunity to get some sort of standing, he turns it down. Jesus uh, is talking to a group of people that day. Not the kind of people that you would think are going to start something. They're not the people that you would probably pick to build the church. It's actually just a tax collector, some fishermen, and a couple of other young men who don't exactly hail from the elite sections of society. But Jesus makes a promise that would endure for generations. This is one of those moments, we've read this, we've heard it, and we can rush past it so fast without thinking about how audacious, how bold of a statement Jesus is making. On this rock, I will build my church. Now, there's two parts to that statement. One of them can be a little difficult, or or it can be a thorny kind of issue. That, That idea of on this rock. In fact, of The portions in Matthew 16, this is one of those sections that has been written about extensively throughout church history. Because some people read this and they come to some different conclusions about exactly what Jesus is talking about. Sometimes our interpretations, we try and jump through all these hoops and figure out, oh, the rock is a symbol or the rock is a location. Like it can have all of these different things. And and the reason for that is because uh, the Catholic Church has read this and this is like the basis for Peter being being the first pope and some of their their leadership structure and because we're protestants we bristle against that and we're just like oh that's that makes us feel a little uneasy and we're not quite sure so it's got to be something else but when we read the passage straightforward Jesus is talking to Peter he's directing his address to Peter it makes the most sense the most straightforward reading is that he is talking to Peter in this moment 
Now, that doesn't mean he's giving him some prominence over the the universal church or making him some sort of like prime director forever and ever. But Jesus is saying Peter is going to be a prominent leader in the church. And we see that in the book of Acts. Peter is a leader in the, uh, the early church. But Jesus isn't declaring Peter, uh, you know, once and for all is this great leader. No, what he's saying is I'm going to build something new and Peter is going to be one of the first rocks on the foundation that I am going to build. On this rock, I will build my church. And reread that statement again. I will build my church. Who, who's the I in that statement? Jesus, right? It's always the church answer, but this time it's actually right. I will build my church. Who's the I? It's Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am responsible for building my church. It's not how I always feel within church structure. Sometimes we can actually feel that responsibility on our shoulders. We can start to think, oh my goodness, the church is riding on me. The church is riding on the decisions that my team makes, or the church is riding on whatever leadership decision is in front of me. We can sometimes try and take the mantle of responsibility and place it on our shoulders. But when we go back and read this statement, Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus takes the responsibility for building the church on his shoulders. But what exactly is Jesus saying he's going to build? That word church is the Greek word ekklesia. And it was probably an odd choice of words on that day in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Ekklesia was a common word for the people, but it didn't have any religious significance at all. An ecclesia was an assembly or a gathering or or a group of people who were congregating together. So if you had like a, a, a town meeting and they were going to gather a bunch of people, hey, we need everybody to come to the town square and we're going to discuss an idea, that would be an ecclesia. That would be an assembly. If after this there was a, a leadership meeting um, today, we might call that an ecclesia. That's a, that's a gathering. It's an assembly. That would have been a very common word. We see it used actually in the book of Acts. They talk about these town meetings, these gatherings of people uh, who want to discuss something. And they use the word ecclesia. That's the word that Jesus uses here is that I'm going to build an ecclesia is what he says. Now, that's noteworthy because Jesus is putting the emphasis, what he's going to build on a group of people, not necessarily a place, not necessarily a building. It's not necessarily some sort of entity uh, that would conduct business or could own property. Jesus is putting the emphasis on people. Now, that's not always common for us. I mean, think about the way that you use the word church. Have you used the word church? Probably this morning you said, hey guys, we're going to go to church, right? You probably have said before, I have a meeting at church. If you've ever had uh, you know, your family wake up a little bit late on a Sunday morning, you have probably said, hurry up guys, we have to get ready for church, right? When we use the word church, we are more often than not thinking about a building or an event. That's kind of what church means to us. But when Jesus says here, I am going to build my church, what he's saying is that I am going to build a group of people, an assembly. I'm going to build a congregation. I'm going to build a movement of people. That's what Jesus says, not that he's going to build a building 
or a physical location. Now, it's not that we try and intentionally misunderstand Jesus' words. In fact, this has been a common thing that this word can get thrown around and people aren't always quite sure how to interpret it. In 1525, William Tyndale produced the first English translation of the Bible from the original Hebrew and Greek texts. Now, to produce an English Bible was already controversial, but Tyndale made it even more so because he translated the word ecclesia into congregation and not church. This verse he translated, I will build my congregation. Tyndale was decried as a heretic. Copies of his Bible were burned, and ultimately, he died a martyr's death because of his choices and the way that he interpreted the Scripture. But Tyndale was going up against the idea that church meant a power structure of priests and bishops and, and, and the Pope even. He, the word church had come to refer to those who were in charge And Tyndale said, that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to build a leadership or an authority structure. That's not what he was talking about. Instead, Tyndale said, the ecclesia is the whole multitude of all of them that receive the name of Christ to believe in him and not for the clergy only. For Tyndale, it was important to draw a distinction. What Jesus is saying here is he is going to build a people He's going to build a group, an assembly, a gathering, or a congregation. And here's what's amazing about that, friends, is that if you're a believer today, you are a part of this promise. If you are a believer, you are a part of Jesus' promise that he made 2,000 years ago. Jesus promised to build a movement, a congregation, an assembly, a body, a gathering, however you want to define it, but a people group. That would follow after him, and you are a part of that. That's an amazing thing. The disciples are the first ones to hear this, and I'm sure in the back of their mind they thought, how is that ever going to happen? How could Jesus ever possibly do this? But Jesus makes a promise, and we know that Jesus' promises can be trusted. This verse is important to me, as I said, because as a leader, sometimes I can feel the responsibility of building the church, and I have to go back and remember that Jesus has made the promise to build his church. He's not putting the responsibility on me that I have to sustain the movement, but that's important for me also because I can look back throughout history and see that Jesus has been faithful to keep this promise over and over. I mean, 2,000 years after Jesus made this promise, here we are. Think about what you would have to do to sustain a group of people following in the same direction for 2,000 years. It's impossible to even fathom. I mean, the church has, has transcended continents. The church has transcended technological change. The church has transcended cultures or political parties or languages or any other overwhelming odd that you could think, and yet here we are. We're older than any business. We're older than any university. We're nearly older than any country in the history of the planet, and here we are. And why is that? Because Jesus said he was going to build his church, his gathering. Jesus makes a promise, and Jesus' promises can be trusted. Now, 
It's ridiculous enough to think about Jesus saying this in that moment. If we were sitting there, there would have had to have been some doubt that would have crept into our mind. But it only gets even more unbelievable when we think about the fact that not a long while after this, Jesus is going to hand over the responsibility of, of leading the church. He's going to hand over that leadership presence to this group of tax collectors and fishermen. Now, these men were persecuted and killed in the infancy of the movement. They have to stand up against the most powerful empire the world has ever seen, and they are persecuted and killed even as the movement continues growing. They have to sift through all the writings and the philosophies and the teachings of early leaders to discern how the movement can manifest Christ's call to love, and they undergo reform, and during that time, guess what? People are persecuted and killed and some people in the movement are even on the wrong side of history, and they participate in the persecution and the killing of others. And yet, whether in the open or hidden, whether in plain sight or in underground meetings, through different cultures and landscapes, the church carries on. And we are a part of this promise today, right where you're at. Now, it might feel um, unbelievable to talk about the church growing and the church carrying on because we may not always feel that way. But around the world, the church is growing. LifeWay published some facts and trends of global Christianity in 2020. And listen to this. The number of evangelicals in the world has increased from 112 million in 1970 to 386 million in 2020. Christianity is growing at five times the rate of atheism. Currently, Christianity is the only religion with more than 2 billion followers. And by 2050, Christianity is expected to reach 3 billion followers. In 1900, more than half the world's population was unevangelized. But in 2020, that percentage has decreased to 283 those statistics, those trends might seem unbelievable, and yet they are what's happening around the world. And why is that? It's because uh, technology has made everything easier. Well, sure, technology may have helped. It's because we finally figured out all the leadership dilemmas in the world. Well, probably not, right? Why is it that the church continues to grow and prosper? It's because Jesus made a promise on a dusty day in Caesarea Philippi saying, I will build my church. Not my building, not the physical temple, but I am going to build a movement of people and nothing in this world can overcome it. Friends, we are part of a miracle. The ecclesia is a work which could only be created and sustained by God. Some days when I think about the church, I'm tempted to only think about problems or things that I wish were better or improvements or, or any number of things. But there's a constant conviction that reminds me that despite all of its flaws, the church is a miracle. And its very existence, the fact that people gather in Aransas County and all across Texas and across the United States, across the world, the very existence of the church should be one more reason that I have to praise God. Over the next couple of weeks, we are going to think together about the church, why it's necessary, why it is incredible, and why being a part of the church should ignite a passion inside of us. But today, may we remember that Jesus, 
the Savior of the world who emptied himself to take on flesh and live among us, promised to build a movement, a gathering of people. He is the founder and the architect, but he invites us to join him to be witnesses to everyone that we meet. And he has promised that no matter the circumstances, the challenges, or the difficulties, the church will endure and continue, and not even the greatest opposition can overcome it. Would you pray with me?